Welcome to the Adult Candy Podcast. I'm Miss Crystal, your host and idea slinger. What is adult candy about? Well, it's dedicated to cultivating creativity and sensuality in adults, which, let's be honest, is what we all want more of anyway. This exploration of mindful indulgence is in conversations with a very delicious mix of rebels, noted creatives, and sex-positive advocates of an imaginative variety. We dig into process and tools for facing fears and chasing dreams and keeping the magic in running the business of creative sexy cool. While this is absolutely going to be explicit with adult content and bursting with very sexy, the mission here is about embracing and accepting pleasure and desire, which is an internal process. And that is the foundation for any type of meaningful intimacy, passion, or sexual prowess. So buckle up or unbuckle or buckle down because in these very bizarro times, we absolutely can't go back. We go through. Tell me what you want to talk about. So, it's such a weird, I mean, yeah, it's such a... It's not weird. It's just is like I think you know some things about me, and then but I don't know if you know a lot. I don't know a lot about you, but I know of you, and that is always significant. You know that you have been in and around the art world, and you have managed to brand yourself in that specific way, right? Because of course the hair and the glasses and the look. Um, but really, what stuck out to me, even though I know that you're, you know, uh, artist, art world, was when we had that. Door for you. Yeah. I'll shut it, and we can get. I can turn off the music, and we can do lots of things. All the opportunities. Although I kind of love having like this little light jazz in the background. Yeah, sure, sure. We can let it play. I'll just turn it down. <clears throat> Um, so the thing that was really compelling to me was, and I think it was either at an archive event or I don't even know. I mean, I see you all around at all of the different places, so I don't remember where we got into this conversation, but you mentioned Topi and just, uh, some of the experiences that you'd had through that. And I think we were talking about sex positivism. Yes. And we had found ourselves in your past and my t my past simultaneously, and they both had a kind of they had a varied and I think you know sort of they shared that notion of being relatively misunderstood at its time, kind of experiences that were fairly sex positive in that space, and a lot of other people don't have that kind of uh, understanding. I think that's what it was. I think it was a sex positive conversation. Yes. Yeah. And that absolutely was it. And also because, and Topi has all of these different connotations. I think for you, it probably was a totally different experience than for me, my friend was in it and she was, you know, a 16 year old girl, you know, pretty 16 year old girl is a different experience than the, the like adult male. Um, and so, or even a 19 year old boy. Yeah. Black boy. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, I'm, sure. you know, uh, that's mine. a yeah. weird artsy one. Um, 
And uh, so the point of the Adult Candy podcast is I really want to explore creativity and sensuality um, and cultivating that. Because when you become an adult, keeping your sense of creativity and keeping or even growing or creating a sense of sensuality is not a part of this culture, any culture, really. Um, you know, sexuality, absolutely. You know, and I think specifically for men, um, you know, you're just immediately like, go have sex, here's some porn, whatnot. But like, actually cultivating your internal mechanisms for being a sensual creature doesn't really happen. It's just, you know, uh, short-lived short or unexplored completely. Yeah, I understand that for lots of women, especially as they get older, their sex is deprioritized and their pleasure has become uh, a, a relatively un, undiscovered and undiscussed kind of priority in the world. I, so I know, I know where that conversation could be coming from, but I don't... <clears throat> I don't have a, I don't have a, what I think, I don't have a typical understanding of my own sex mass as an old man mm -hmm. at all. And I don't have a, I certainly don't have a, uh, I don't, I certainly don't have a cliche around it or a, uh, or a stereotype around men and their sex, sex mass mm -hmm. as they get older. Someone asked me one time, oh, what are the trends that you see? And I go, I don't know, it's springtime. Old men spend more time on college campuses. <laughs> you know, like, like if you look around you, you can see people react to each other. And I think you can see age play a role in certain types of voyeurism. And I think you can see young and old kind of cohabitate in awkward sex negotiated ways, you know, like where sex is, is or is not a part of the currency. But, but I don't know if I have a cliche or, or a stereotype around that for men or for women for that matter, well, except for the lack of priority. <laughs> that, that seems to be inaccurate. Well, that's exactly why I want to have these conversations with people who are outside of the cliche, right? Because, you know, to try and have, to, to even to even poke at, you know, what the experience of being in a sex positive, you know, for lack of a better word, cult that Topi was, um, as a 19 year old black boy in Denver, how that might have opened you up into, you know, how your artistic process, how your relationship process, like how did that affect and cultivate this incredibly rich world that I am sitting in this studio, this, you know, this intensity and passion and connection with your own interests, like, and the confidence to continually create, like, I, I, I believe there is a, a deep connection in understanding and taking the time to appreciate your sensual self or sexual self to not have as many hangups about it opens the door for everything else, right? Because, you know, if you understand who you are as a sexual person, all of a sudden your self-acceptance is like, it's there. 
I will, I will begin by saying the most interesting, accurate, true thing I ever read about Toby was that Toby never happened. Toby doesn't exist. Anyone that tells you it happened is fucking lying to you. Run away from them. No one talks about Toby. Fight Club. Sort of. That's, <laughs> that's how it felt. And, mm. and it felt very true and felt very real to me because it wasn't as well organized as people ever claimed it to be. Mm. Um, it was anarchistic at its core. And it was also about personal power, so it wasn't very hierarchical. Um, people just basically got along with each other himself. And this is a visitor. I wasn't even living in Denver. I came through Denver with Jen and Paula and the kids and, uh, you know, Psyche TV 2, or <laughs> one and a half. And, uh, and we came through Denver because that's what Jen always did. But I met up with Jen when I was living in New York. And I was living in Manhattan, in Harlem, and I took a month off to go on the road with them. And I paid my rent to my roommates in advance and went up to um, Poughkeepsie High Park, New York, mm -hmm. and caught the first show on the Eastern Seaboard. And I bought tickets to every single show down to Washington, D.C. Wow. And so that was what, that was what I was going to spend my month doing, because I had followed Jen and I had gotten the smell of like what he was up to and I was really into it and it made really good sense for me to reset my brain in this way by spending time in this space mm. with Jen and, and the band and whatever. But I had, no, I had no concept that I was going to connect with them. I just had tickets to all the shows and that was that. I showed up to the first show. It was a very, very small show. And in, a, in an instant, Jen and Paula were like, you what? You got all the tickets? <laughs> For what? For all the shows? Oh, okay, we'll give those away, but you're with us now. Wow. And that was that. Wow. And it lasted all the way to San Francisco through Denver, and we did a month and change, a month and maybe 10 days on the road together. And that was my, that was my time with Genesis and Paula and the kids and the band and Tom and and it was also my first time away from what I thought Topi would be, what I thought Psyche TV was and and it was my first time in reality versus the myth mm. and so that was really exciting for me. Mm. I said yes all the time. So what was the reality then? What do you think, like, what did you, do you remember what the myth for you was and what was the original the belief system? The myth was that it was organized. The reality was that it wasn't and didn't need to be. How did that affect you, like, trying to go back to reality and, you I haven't know. gotten back yet. <laughs> no, I do, I do think a lot all the time about ways of thinking and believing and believing that there are boundaries and edges where there are not boundaries and edges can affect how you behave in the world. And so, so the mythology of it being organized, much like every other, like, like, <clears throat> zines and mail order mm. had such a interesting effect on me because through this method of communication, which was really like 
old and took a long time and, you know, really committed, these methods of communication always gave me the sense that I was dealing with some level of bureaucracy. <laughs> and, and it was because my parents immigrated to the United States and it took over two years to do it. And I watched them do it and it was constant mail-order bureaucracy. Mm. It really was. And so when we came to the States, I just assumed everything that happened in the mail was bureaucracy and it was communication. And, it was and then Maximum Rock and Roll showed up in my life. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Flipside and other sorts of zines that you could start ordering things mail-order. You could order records mail-order from SST or MRAP. Like, like the albums that are in my closet, like many of those albums are the mail order records that I got from MRAP or from SST when I was into that music. I was like, I can make a postal order or send cash and I will get this record. These people are fundamentally honest. They'll deal with you like an honest person. Don't change your address for fear of, you know, you not getting stuff. Right. Um, blah 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 and it gave me all this, this crazy sense of bureaucracy inside of punk rock and all these alternative spaces because someone had to run them someone had to make the alternative available someone had to publish a record someone had to take the time to do the dial poets thing someone had to take the time to do the Nova convention someone had to give a copy of Naked Lunch to Frank Zappa to read out loud <laughs> and and for that phenomena for that moment in time space to have happened and for us to enjoy it the recording of it mm -hmm. and so so I started to understand that like you don't you if you don't need to service everybody you can service anyone you want to you you're in a club already you're in a you're in a community already. This mail-order punk rock shit, that was the only evidence I needed. If there's enough customers to make mail-order records happen, then there's, enough, there's punk rockers out there. And so we all want something, and we all want to be part of something. And so I never, I, I just, I basically said, I, it, it just taught me, like, selling out is for whenever you're just so truly fucking desperate. And that it's always there for you if you want it. But... But if you don't have to sell out, then don't. It's okay. What do you... This is interesting that you bring this up because I've, I've talked about this, uh, that it's, it seems to be a generational thing that like a Gen Xer um, has this huge, uh, like this banner of like, don't sell out, you know, and uh, the underground and, you know, stick with the streets. I think that my version of not selling out is this. Oh, okay. You have to get a job. Okay. You, you know, like, you know how to get a job. That's perfect. Selling out is when your internal logic and your external actions don't match up. Mm. That's what I call selling out. If you were always supposed to be an employee of this and that, and you were also always supposed to be this clear and this focused and this mainstream, there's no sellout going on. Mm. You're just right there where you need to be, and that's fucking great. I love you, you love me, we're great friends, etc. For me, the concept of selling out is deeply personal because I know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do and who I'm supposed to work with and who I'm not supposed to work with. I know that the 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 good rest I get comes from acting in a way that's consistent with my values and I know that my values aren't like 
handed down from some patriarch or, or even matriarch, that they're invented, mm -hmm. that they're completely invented and created along this path called life. Mm -hmm. so, so I don't think that my values are small or a small deal. I think that Jen and all these other people who I've had incredible intersections with in my life have formed my value system. So I think it's worth fucking protecting. Mm. And and then on the other side of that, I just know what selling out looks like for me. And it would be saying no to all the things that I've experienced in my life so far mm. that have really helped me feel like a successful human. Mm. So if I have to say no to that to, to be successful in the next phase, then I'm staying in this phase. This is the good phase for me. I say yes to that, yes to that, yes to that, yes to that. And how that's how values are built for me. Um, how have you been able to cultivate your intuition? Like this, this you say no, like I know, and it's with pure confidence. Has that just been because you started with you know uh, buying a hundred tickets for all of the psychic TVs and just never like <laughs> this that, is what I'm going to be doing? It was hundred. It was twelve. But, <laughs> but but but. No, I think it's a lot older than that. I think it's a, I think, um... How did you I, give yourself permission to say, I know this and I'm sticking by it? I don't know if I've always done it that individualistically. I think I've oftentimes just observed what other people have done and said, I also know that to be true and I'm here to protect that. Mm. Like that's as important for me as knowing my own truth. Mm. My own truth comes out of my own experience. I think that when you say everyone's got 10 things they want to share with everyone, that's like me. But I've also had such, I, I'm going to call it intimate because it is to me, but I've had intimate relationships or experiences with people or groups of people that have truly helped form my thinking of, uh, of what alongside the stuff that I believe in would I protect if I was called to action. And those are some other ideas too, and there's about 10 times out of many more than the ones that I believe in or have created unto myself. Mm. Like the experiences that I've had for myself are like these, the raising these daughters. Mm. So being a dad and being my kind of dad, I, <laughs> I felt like I did it. I felt really good about it. My, my youngest daughter's 18 tonight. So I feel like I've done it or am doing it. I feel somewhat successful at it, um, and and it's my own version of the dad thing because my dad was not a good model for that. Mm. But but those experiences, I can say, yeah, there's at least one thing or two things or three things about being a dad that I'd be happy to share with every single person out there and say, you think it's this, but really, haha, I know this. It's really this. What and are I those things? <laughs> I, I gotta know. What are those oh. things? Oh, um, well, one of them goes right into this, the theme of this, which is having a sex positive household with young women in it Yeah, and trying to achieve that as a single dad too. And that sounds the, tough. Well, it's tough if you're in the idea that you're there to protect their chastity ah. and it's tough if you're in that idea that you're somehow an owner of their chastity. And it's tough if you believe yourself to be sort of somehow attached to their like sex organs as a parent or as a dad. Mm. That's what makes it tough. But when you start divorcing yourself from that kind of role, like 
you don't own them and you don't own their sex organs and their sex action, then it gets a little bit easier. And then when you behave in a way that's consistent with being like body positive and love positive and you spend time talking about the sensation of love and you spend time talking about the sensation of like knowing yourself and your body and stuff like that and I didn't do it alone I got lots of help but um, but that yields a really different kind of uh, hope mm. for her sex future right which Healthy. is not chastity yeah it's not, it's like, I, I'm not a parent that had a hope for chastity. I truly actually remember someone being like, dude, that's going to be tough, right? And I'm like, uh, sorry, man, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> and he's like, well, you got two girls right there. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not trying to be like the, the owner of their chastity. And he looked at me like I had just said like something horrid. Yeah. And it was more of a reflection of what he felt about himself, perhaps, or as I described that in my own terms, he's like, ooh, that sounds gross. But it only sounds gross because we don't talk about it, and it only sounds gross because he's in some sort of disagreement about it, but, but, and it can be gross because you say it's gross, I don't care. But, but my experience with it was like, that was the, that was the, and continues to be like, the bridge that I cross over to talk to my, my young people about love and, and sex and whatever sex sex behavior they need guidance around. Uh, but also but also like the whole idea of romantic love being at the center of that and them experiencing that makes me infinitely happy. <laughs> I feel like I actually have more at stake in my daughter's uh, experience in romantic love by an ocean of you know of multitudes than I do in their in hers in her sex existence. Mm. I let that be fundamentally private, you know. But when she feels good things about a person, <laughs> I want to know more about that. Right, you know? that's the part that actually matters. It well, feels like that to me. I don't know. It just feels also normal for people to be invested in other people's love and their love interests, as opposed to like, are they pure? Right, the chastity Well, that's just element. the teenage thing, too. It's a, it's a father and daughter. It's a young woman and the rest of her community. There's all this right. I mean, supposed like slut-shaming out there. Right, that's it's the... It's really available. It's super available to people if they want to do it. I mean, it's the standard value globally, you know, is a, a woman's purity. I don't know. I can't purity. speak to globally. That's a, that's a super big stretch. I would never wrap that around the global world. Well, you know, if, I th you, know, if you think about, uh, you know, uh, Asia... And, and all of the varying levels of Asian culture as the Indian woman and Chinese women and I don't Japanese mean it in that women. Way. I don't mean it in that way. What I mean is I don't, I don't use superlatives. Don't. Ever. I never, ever, ever use superlatives. <laughs> I don't use superlatives in that way because I already know that um, I think differently to that and I've got to believe there are other people that do too. So there could be massive pockets of people that think differently that we haven't discovered yet. I, and I agree Massive to that. I agree to that, but the idea that mainstream I like mainstream culture, right? Exactly. I'm not, and, and that's, to, I'm not afraid to envelop mainstream culture, but it's that mainstream culture is not a superlative to me. It's just a segment of our of our population. Right. I think for me, I just like to remind myself that it's like because so often you can get um, trapped into the well American culture or, or uh, mainstream. American. Mainstream American, yeah, the mainstream American culture or the uh, mainstream Judeo-Christian culture 
you know, or yeah. white culture, whatever. But, um, you know, if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, also, that is, that is part of the value system, you know, it's not every single person on the planet, but it is the general, you know, guideline. Is but it generally makes me sad to think about things at that scale. It's yes, because it, it does because it doesn't seem true to me. First of all, if there are over three hundred dialects spoken in one subcontinent, like India, and people are talking about languages dead, it's just not the experience of every person. Even though our language is shrinking, and even though Chinese has shrunk, and even though so many other languages have this tendency to contract, but I, I still know that to not be true of the whole world. And, and in that, I have some hope that there's diversity of all kinds out there to be explored. And I gain nothing by talking about things in generalities, or the cliches, or the, or the, uh, the mainstreams. I gain nothing from talking about that it's such a massive assumption. It also allows people in the mainstream to make assumptions about people who are not in the mainstream. And this is where I think we have benefited the most, which is that um, 80s punks who have grown up and have been forces for good in their communities and have been entrepreneurs and, and have, have been people who have hired other people and have led creative lives and so on and so forth. This this idea that we were the filth and the scum of the mm. earth and we weren't worth a piss. This idea that we had no value or values. This thing is is actually so far from the truth and always has been. But in the sense of like what I like about justice is the concept of like stand still long enough and you're completely vindicated about everything. <laughs> you know, this is what I enjoy about that. It's 2020 and the sex positive world of hardcore 1980s punk, you know, in DC is alive and well and so is the riot girl and so is, you know, sort of uh, not making assumptions about people's uh, discovery of themselves and so is the idea of doing it yourself because the mainstream can't represent you, and so is the idea of publishing, and so is you know so all of these things I feel thoroughly and 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 beautifully vindicated by the idea that like the ideas that the mainstream at the time told us were foolish are now still the tools of the non-mainstream people, and the non-mainstream people have grown and they're publishing and they're creating in greater and greater numbers than ever. So well, I'm supremely optimistic about that. Well, and they've endured, right? And that, yeah. you know, I think what's interesting is that, uh, you know, that kind of, the anarchist culture is so uh, adamant about having a strong-knit community. And that's really, like, the, the giving sense of creating this really strong community. Like, Revoluciones had this, you know, sense of anarchy and all of that and yet here they were like so dedicated right. to creating this space that everybody could feel comfortable in and it was ages ago yeah it yeah. was ages ago early in the conversation for sure yeah but it's the intuition that you asked about how how intuition gets created i think it gets created by watching people have good ideas um, and make great value of those good ideas for, for 30 or 40 years. It's great. <laughs> totally, it totally vindicates you. Stand still long enough. 
you vindicate it. The best <laughs> ideas always win. Well, yeah, I mean, I it's 2020, and I've been a socialist since I was 15, 16, 16. Lovely. And, you know, and it was just never something that I was really like, I could say that, and I, you know, now I can say I am a witch, and I, I am a socialist witch, right. and I can tell people that, it's like, <laughs> that is what I do. It's a certain kind of freedom. <laughs> it is joyful. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, totally I, I am very excited about the fact that I could be like, yes, that's, ex I could put that on my Instagram, and people would be like, awesome, and I'd get true. followers for that. Right. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Right. How do we, how do you think that, you know, moving forward in this age where it just seems to be so much collision of these things, right? That there's there's so much extreme. How do we keep negotiating uh, the truth of it? Or do you think that it is that that's just keep plugging away and we'll we'll make it? Or do you think that there is some sort of deeper need for revolutionary action to break us open, right? Yeah, interesting. That's an interesting thought. I um, so I found myself yesterday talking about this notion of unnecessary arguments, mm. and what I found myself in was this notion of like um, getting into a conversation with someone and then creating a disagreement for any reason, and this. This spur or this offshoot of the conversation has got possibilities built into it. But there are possibilities that are in uh, competition with another idea. Mm. An idea has been stated and then this other idea shoots off of it and it competes with it for uh, importance, right? And, and I found that in unproductive conversations, the, the spurs, end up being kind of non-important arguments. They're, they're unimportant. Mm. Because people don't know where the argument is, they don't know where the disagreement is, so they create it to see what the other find person the does. Right, find the edges. Perfect, perfect. And I find myself that that is probably one of the most sort of disruptive things to being whole, mm. right? Is that you, you are... Yeah, you're in a lot of unnecessary arguments. One of the one of the necessary and psychically disruptive arguments that you might have to be in is sort of like how much of a bitch do I have to be today, mm. or how much of a nigga do I have to be today, and 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 those are sort of psychically disruptive because it's how you have to assert yourself in a way that doesn't feel very natural to you, but people can have if they decide that they want to bring that forth. You, you make it somewhat available and 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 that to me is like our own internal unnecessary argument but it's but it's real happens all the time happens almost uh, without us doing a lot about it because right. it's a trigger or it's an action that's not conscious and and things that feel and look like that for me end up taking up the same sort of space the same mm -hmm. sort of psychic space and it's and it's uh, and it's disruptive to my to my natural self. My natural self wants to say yes to everything mm. and see it in a way that is broad and 
uh, see the work of people as connected, see the the see the freedoms of all people as connected to the freedoms of all people. Mm-hmm. You know, including that of people who decide they want to be fascistic or want to lead. You know, want like I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of the disruption of making hate speech such a crime, but I'm a huge fan of the idea that hate speech is such a crime. I just I don't have the mental bandwidth. and ethical bandwidth to argue with it because I know that if it was not as big a punishment for that, we would be surrounded by it and damaged by it. Mm. But I also want to hear people's truths. Mm. You know, so so things like that end up being like these really awkward spaces of like, oh yeah, you know, I want to speak my truth and I want you to speak your truth. I want to ho- I want you to hold back. But there is. This but I also thing, don't want you to be a dick. <laughs> but I also don't want you to psychically injure me or anybody else because that's not what this is about. It's not one of the goals of this of this experience together. Mm. So therefore, there are there are things that are that I can't say. That I want to say yes to everything, but I, there are things that I should I should be conscious and framed around my no. Your right? boundaries. My boundary, which is sort of this sense of collaborative ethics, right? Which mm. in an anarchist world. There are no leaders, but there are rules. Mm. And so the rules come out of community, and so we have this shared ethics, right? And that all sort of is an evolution of ideas. That, that's really interesting, because as you're, you're speaking of this, I am, I'm reminded of uh, justice, the notion of justice, right? right? Sure. Which is like, you know, um, the assumption that's like, someone is going to come after me, so I want to be able to go out. I want to have the right to go after whomever, right? The 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 assumption that everybody's out to get you, or that you're going to be hurt in some way, and that you can reciprocate, right? Like to already create that. Um, I don't know if that resonates as justice for me. Talk more. Um, well, that, that's the whole, the Plato, like that's the original argument for it was, you know, finding the ring and, you know, the, the whole, the basis of it was that, um, ring, uh, I'm going to steal this ring and I have to like, you know, I'm, I will, if someone steals this ring from me, I'm going to go and kill them and that's going to be the value of it. Like, it's just constantly this, right. it's the reaction, right? Justice okay. is actually this idea now. of reaction. Yeah, it's always a reaction. It's always a reaction. Right. Seeking justice is by, is creating equilibrium where there is no equilibrium or so there's some sort of uh, distortion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, <laughs> so how do I feel about Justice in, well, in the ethics, the well, homemade ethics of punk rock, DC, nineteen eighty-five. Right. Well, how how to incorporate it? Because I like to think of it as that we've been uh, embedding that into our cultural experience in Western society for you know two thousand years of this like notion of just like the protective, um, you know, take care of myself because you're gonna fuck me over. And then how that is correlated to like being in this place where you're like, I want to be the good guy, but culturally, it's just it's it's embedded in right. Something's so, baked in the cake. Yeah, it's been baked in the cake. So even though it's clearly 
like as like as just a human being outside of the cultural experience the the inherent desire to be at peace and to be not having these you know side conversations that like split you off into like you know am i going to be you know am i going to be what kind of bitch do i need to be today mm. right the defensive right? right because we've just been curating the defensive right so my my thoughts are like how is it how can we conscientiously have this movement of undoing or redoing or remixing the defensive uh yeah that big part of the unnecessary argument lives right there i think that that's what makes us you know less great <laughs> <laughs> i think if we could just not have to do that that would be perfect I don't want to. I don't want to redesign what my armor looks like. Yeah. I, I would just want to take it off. Well, I I want to um, I want to share it to the to the to the to the effect that armor and some form of protection is powerful, mm-hmm. and that I have the kind of agency that has created this, or I've had opportunity, or I've been gifted some armor. And I, and I see people with less of that, then I want to share it. Because, because the goal in a, in a truly sort of diverse culture, the goal is to get the person who is less likely to share and least able to have agency and voice, the goal is to give that person agency and voice so that everyone can be like, Get the fuck out of here! It's so brilliant! You know, like a wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Like someone who actually needs a wheel would invent the fucking wheel, you know? <laughs> and that might be a person who's differently able from the person who doesn't need the fucking wheel. So, so in my, my intellectual mind says that this armor or this defense or whatever it is that we have... It's something that we need to sort of show people the techniques and tactics, spread it around, so that everyone feels safe. And then, at some point, we all sort of agree that this is the nature of our armor. Like, build it no further. This is the nature of, like, a non-proliferation treaty of, like, these are our nukes. We all have personal nukes. Everybody knows it. And I'm not going to drop my fucking nuke on you. You know, like, we're going to get along and we're going to attempt to listen and we're going to attempt to share and respond. And we know that that's not always natural for everybody and that we don't have to do that. We don't have to agree at all. Mm-hmm. But we're going to give it a shot. And that's the frame of the game. That's the frame <laughs> of our conversation. And we're going to do it. You know, so, so to me, the, I think, yeah, it's right to giggle. I think, I think there's some great joy in that. Because what we do by that, doing that is like show people tools. They're like, that's a tool for like not being triggered by someone else's ignorance. Oh, right, because they don't mean to not know stuff. (laughs) They just don't know stuff. Right, it's not intentional to piss you off, right? Well, if you walk around with that sort of thinking, boy, you're going to stay pissed off. Yeah. If you have to be the smartest person, ah, it's already over. (laughs) It's It's an exhausting life, you know, I think... Most people are completely exhausted all the time. And that's, yeah, there's a piece of it. Like, I think my partner, Deborah, teaches me fairly well that, like, 
it's good to know some stuff, but it's great to not know lots of stuff. <laughs> to just, just release it. It's well, like, I can't a, be that. And be a learner in it. You yeah. Know? Be, a, be forever a learner in it. Know what you know, but also make room for like a little bit of growth every time. Mm. You know. So again, it's a lot of saying yes. It's a lot of saying yes. There's not, like the, he's trying to show, he's trying to illustrate how negative thinking creeps into our existence and how you apply negative energy to a good a, a, a neutral idea and it takes it to the negative and it never gets touched right right it just you apply sucks. positive energy to a neutral idea it gets acted upon mm. you apply neutral energy to a neutral idea it stays completely stagnant mm. but but people apply negative energy so easily that they don't see it Mm. It's almost invisible to the action of just knocking stuff down. One of the great ways people do it is by using comparison. Comparison that, is a tool for the weak. You know what? That actually so fits in to this idea of uh, how our lack of connection with sexuality and our comfort with it. Because it's all you comparative. Know? Right. She's more slutty than her. He's a bigger dick than him. Or he's, you know, whatever. Right, it's not there. accepting of but, oneself, it's based but it's on... all that. Right. Yeah, all the psychic pain that comes from being a sexual being is then put through this filter of comparison, and it, it amplifies the pain that people go through by some great volume, and then it's your job for the rest of your natural life to sort of walk yourself back from that kind of psychic pain. Yeah. yeah. How do you... How have you cultivated your sex positivity? It's a no-win... The rest of it's a no-win game. That's why. <laughs> you, just can't, you can't win any other way. You can't win any other way. But, I mean, like, you know, th this show is about talking to people and learning about what what has worked for them. And hopefully people that hear it are like, ah, I want to hand people tools to actually become <laughs> sex positive or to think of themselves in... in in new ways and I think that that's a conversation that's important for women in this time as we're you know, just okay. always so then, and then for so men cool. Cool, cool, cool. I got you. for men so to, to be you know because I think men have so much psychic pain around not really not getting the opportunity to to, to be embraced as emotional sensitive loving gentle yeah, sensual know. creatures it's I just, wish it's not the I, day to day. I wish I knew it from your vantage point. I wish I had all the things that you know you have, as well as the stuff that I know I have, um, because then I believe I would be truly free. Right? <laughs> the um, I think you're right. I think that men are in so much psychic pain is a generalization that I would agree with, and I would also agree with it being different to that of women. Mm. Um, so one tool that I would say one like experience that I had that I felt was really great was that I have this these two daughters and I was in charge of taking one of them to her first OBGYN appointment mm. and and you know I asked a few people what to, what it would be like and I talked to some women who I trust and and and, uh, and I came up with this idea of like 
in the waiting room or on the way in the car, I would sort of look at her and I would say, so the purpose of this meeting is to establish some goals for your um, um, reproductive sexual health? Well, no. It was actually just two things. I used a two very specific words. I said, some goals for your contraception. Mm. And also, at the same time, there are these goals that we have in talking about sex and your hormonal, uh, your hormonal comfort. Like, like some of these techniques also affect you hormonally and you have this knowledge or information from school and from all the young girls that you talk to that the pill helps you with acne and la la la. You know, so I'm, it's, not, it's not unknown to me that you have several sets of goals here. What I want you to do though is I want you to sort of imagine that they're two very different goals and that both are worth talking about at the same level. Hmm. Because they're both connected to your health and they're both connected to possibly the same tool or instrument or they could be different tools or instruments. Mm -hmm. And and that's and I said it and I meant it, or at least I said to myself, you're gonna mean it by the time you say it. And what I gave myself permission to do was treat her health, her sex health stuff with the same respect as a kid who also wants to like not have acne and knows that this is a technique for solving that. And to just be respectful about the idea that we're talking about her, not me. Mm. <laughs> like I can't have goals about her acne. Mm -hmm. She can. And I can't have goals about her contraception. She can. And so we were gonna do that together. Do you feel that that translates to you with your your partners through your life is to to recognize that her goals are for her as opposed to like separating your your place? Yeah, it doesn't hurt to be with super strong women. It doesn't <laughs> hurt at all like that I have I have the women in my life to thank for uh, my feminist outlook. Mm. I have them to thank for that for sure. How did you become like it, was your mother a very strong... Like, how do you learn how to appreciate that complex, strong, awesome, you know, sometimes intimidating woman? Yeah, my mom's a strong, strong lady. Um, I think the strength that she showed me was in one very specific set of actions. Mm -hmm. And this was that she... Um, you know, she had always said she, had, she didn't know whether she wanted to be a nurse or a nun. Well... And obviously she wasn't a nun. <laughs> she became a nurse. But in her nursing space, she made a deep commitment early on. Um, her, one of her first rotations was OBGYN, and she stayed there forever. Mm. When I was born, she was a midwife. Mm. Later on, as I got to know what she did, she had sort of like the three, four jobs kind of thing, like a West Indian woman that had like a morning job and then a lunchtime job and then an after lunch she would go back to the morning job and then after that job she would go to the, the job at five o'clock job 
and then she would come home and then make dinner and then go to the overnight job where she, you know, like nurses, like sitting wow. by the bedsides of dying people and stuff like that. She was exactly that person. She would sleep with one eye open at the bedside of dead people, dying people. Wow. Know, like she was a hospice nurse. My point was this. She had one job. It was, I think, Tuesdays between 5 and 7 p.m. It was seven doors down from us on the other side of the Seventh-day Adventist church that was on our high street. There was a community center, and she took over that tiny community center for two hours every Wednesday. I believe it was a Wednesday now, uh, and did a family planning clinic. Hmm. And so she had IUDs and condoms and all sorts of other uh, apparatus and, and teaching tools for uh, young women and their contraceptive goals. Mm. And uh, that's what we call family planning in the, in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> is, 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 you know, contraception is called family planning. And, uh, that speaks and she, volumes, doesn't it? Well, it does. And she did this while her kids were going to a Roman Catholic school, while we were at a Roman Catholic church. Wow. Yeah. She was raising her children in a Roman Catholic school and church and she was performing family planning uh, duties as, a, as an RN hmm. as part of her work in her professional life and she found herself with very little conflict around that she, hmm. she didn't discuss it as a conflict she didn't think of it as she was like this is what I do I'm a nurse and she was very forthright about it wow you know simple the first punk rock earrings that I ever made was out of IUD that I found in her in her stuff when I was just <laughs> rummaging through my mother's shit when I was 10 years old. I was like, look, mom, I'm a punk rocker. And I stuck this IUD inside my ear and let it dangle <laughs> down. And she's like, put my shit back. What are you doing in my stuff? Put it back right now. I was like, I just found punk rock earring, mom. You know, <laughs> it's like little punk Ricky. Yeah, it was stupid. Wait, so you were punk rock when you were 10? Well, come on. I mean, it, it's the UK. Adam and the Ants, I mean, all that punky, weird shit's been going on forever. Mm. It's like 79 when the Sex Pistols made the Never Mind the Bollocks, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I was 10 years old. So how did you... Did you ever have conflict with, like, Roman Catholic? Like, if mom didn't have the conflict, then I don't have the conflict? I'm a Jew now. <laughs> <laughs> My conflict with... Catholicism is that it's it's uh, it's it's an orthodoxy that's not discussed in the way that other orthodoxies are discussed. Hmm. I think most people think of the orthodoxies of other religions as marginal, hmm. as a little crackpot to be taken with a grain of salt. You know, a commitment, a cultural and a life commitment. But Roman Catholic is not? Yeah, that's fucking wackadoo. That shit is cray-cray. <laughs> like, don't try and tell me otherwise. That's silly. And I think that people not talking about, like, the Roman Catholic Church as an orthodoxy was just foolish. It's, of course, an orthodoxy. Hmm. It's one of the most powerful orthodoxies in the world. I always... My mom, uh, she went to Catholic school, and my grandparents were... You know, she was Catholic, but they were Catholic light. They weren't, like, Catholic... Yeah. Yeah. Intense, you yeah, know, sure. and um, I went to a C of E secondary school, mm. and that was totally different. But, but 
all of these religious structures, every one of them that doesn't want to be reformed, uh, don't look too close. You might burn your eyeballs out. Yeah. You know, reform in, in organized religion is not just a good idea. It's the only idea. It's give people freedom to worship and follow the thing they believe that made them in as, with as much freedom as possible. I, Period. I think that, I mean, it looks, it sounds like you washed all of it out of your ears. Hair. Yeah, washed it out of your hair. Although for me, (laughs) I mean, I always think that like, if you had like, uh, if you were raised around, you know, organized religion, it's hard, like even, even when you move on to something else and you've resolved it and whatnot, there's still little weird moral grains that are in there. It's a terrific story though. It's a terrific (laughs) story. It's like the story of a great political prisoner. It's a story of a person who was persecuted. It's a great set of stories. I think it's a great story about politics and power. I think the the story of the Christ is a great story about political power. And uh, and I think that there are lots of great stories through all of these amazing books that call themselves religious texts. There's great stories in there. You can learn from every one of them. Yeah. Not a big deal, really. But you can also learn from more contemporary stories. You can also learn from each other. You can also... You know, there's just stuff that feels good and is right. And it doesn't have to come from 2,000-year-old text or, you know, 5,778-year text. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't have to do that either. So, it, it's, I, I am a Jew because I chose my faithful identity with my, with my wife. Mm-hmm. And I chose my faithful identity because she asked me to choose a faithful identity for the raising of kids in the future. Mm. And I said, for sure, you know, and we chose that and I identify in this way because it makes sense to me as well. Mm-hmm. It's a reform movement and it allows for the freedom of people to believe what they want to believe. It also has tremendous, uh, it has a tremendous stickiness to me in one great concept called Tupu Malam. It's just the concept of repairing the earth. Mm. It assumes that people have done damage to things and you're going to come and whatever you do to it, you're going to try and let it heal. You're mm. going to be a force for good. And that to me is just terrific. You know, like, <laughs> just, that's, just... Gives you move, strength. Let's move through this and be like, you know, it's my goal to be a force for good. Please, if I slip up, you know, know that this is my intention. Mm. And if everybody gets that, then it, wouldn't, it doesn't matter that you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're anything. Yeah. As long as your intention is like, you know, to be a force for good. Right. And not a lot of orthodoxies can say that. No. Most orthodoxies say that they are forced for the expansion of their own beliefs. Right. <laughs> my good and only my good right. and your good is not good. Your good is bad, right? Yeah. Should I turn up the light a little bit? Uh, probably. It's getting a it's little dusk. dark. It's dusky. <laughs> it's dusky. That's one of the reasons why I like this room so much because it takes natural light so well. Mmm. So, so, uh, so this notion of applying negative energy in, includes the word no, and it also includes any kind of renegotiation from yes, and it's uh, and the the most interesting part of looking at it through that lens is to say, oh, I'm going to say yes to you and what you say, and I'm going to say I don't know, tell me more, 
and I'm gonna say, yeah, bring it on, you know, and and keep on expressing yourself, yes, 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 and then and then I'm also going to sort of move away from the idea of competing with it mm. as like creating a competitive idea with it for no reason whatsoever. I'm gonna move away from that, and and one of the reasons why I think it's healthier to do that is because the idea that you that you have that is related to it that's different needs to be different first and related second mm. and so it needs to not compete there needs to be room for both mm. yes and yes and the improv way mm-hmm. yeah um <clears throat> I'm, I'm i'm sitting with that i'm sitting with it that's a lot of um belief system yeah sure it's it's sort of one sentence really but well i know how it can look like a lot it's not a lot but that's that's the thing is that you you how you are creating the complexity of things because it's really that it's a very simple thing but if you show yourself a very simple thing then all of a sudden all of your complicated things are like but 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 and then you're that that it feels like a lot of pressure right so my belief that calculus exists this way is a, is exactly what holds me together. Is that what we're dealing with is uh, for for an, for a conversation that hasn't happened yet, we are dealing with an infinite amount of variables. Mm. For a conversation that we're going to have, we're dealing with some very specific variables, and the one that we already had, we dealt with seven variables. Do you see how we took? the idea of a completely unknown amount of variables, which is two times a mystery, mm-hmm. down to some part of a mystery, down to the number seven, but still all mystery. The, for, for me, the beauty of, of this kind of thinking is that you're always just sort of replacing a variable with a whole number, with an integer of sorts. Mm. You're always doing that. You were, we're going like, Yes, 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 and I'm listening, and I'm listening, and I'm listening. Oh, she believes this, and that's a very specific thing. So that is now an integer, and it's not open, it's now a thing. And we do that, and sometimes we do it in unnecessary ways, like I was talking (laughs) about. And then we do it in really necessary ways that become markers for other people to be like, oh, that's a very specific thing, and add that to one of my seven and create my own sense of mystery. I love that you have finally given me some kind of value around calculus in a way that I would care about, which is conversationally. That if yeah. you could turn, that you've just turned, there's a math in conversation. Yeah, there's a math in understanding, yeah. in getting along, in being together. Mm. And that is the reduction of all, anything to something, and the reduction of something to a thing. <laughs> and the beauty that comes from having clarity with another person. Yes. Mm. It's not always required either. I mean, there's beauty in the mystery of the magic too. But the beauty of clarity in, the, in an ocean of mystery and magic is really quite juicy. It's quite yeah, that's where, the, that's where, you know, that's where the actual inspiration is. Well, between two people, it's when you... It's when you let someone touch you. It's when, like, physical contact isn't, like, completely fucking horrible and scary. Mm. Because you've taken so many different variables down to, like, yeah, no, it's great. It's, 
we're, we're there already. Ha like, in our society, we have so much issue around, like, actual touch, actual yeah, intimacy. Sure. Of course. Because we think it's the only form of intimacy, that's why. What are the other forms of intimacy? Well, there's a lot of mental intimacy available to tons of that, an ocean of that, for sure. How do you cultivate mental intimacy? Take people for walks inside of your models of things and <laughs> share them and have fun, giggle. Yeah. I think giggling really helps. I'm glad you're a good giggler. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I actually, our family is has a specific giggle, like the entire family line. Um, my uncle had a giggle and you could hear it and you could be anywhere, he could be anywhere in the room and you would know him. Yeah. And, uh, there's a very fun, weird story that I'm, I'm just so curious about how it works. But, um, my cousin and my sister were both given up for adoption. So they were never around my family or the, the giggle and both of them have it. Ah, that's Range. Yeah, it is. It's totally strange. To, like, is it genetic? Like, is there some capacity for joy there's, and giggle? There's opportunity, I'm sure, in the biology. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. as as addiction might be something that's biological, so might be the ability to express joy. You know, like yeah, some little quirkiness, something some in the blood, cleft, plat, cleft palate, or something. You know, like. That makes for that possibility. Yeah. I, I think the giggle is something that's super important. I once dated a monster, but he had a giggle. And I just, I right. I would, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there was a little extra room there because he'd turn into a little giggle. And I'd be like, here's this big, you know, gigantic Adonis person that would giggle like a little Pillsbury Doughboy. And I was like, okay, never mind. Yeah. Surprise and delight. Right. For sure. So, so, but the concept of intimacy and stuff like that, yes. The, some, some mainstream cultures are super hung up on that. But I think that they don't cultivate anything else either. So, you know, it's all those other pieces of the puzzle as they get resolved to finite things that we share and believe together. It's all those things that make room for a hug or a touch. And, and if you don't do any of that work... You know, it's just a less good hug and a less good touch, <laughs> all the way to sort of repulsive, right? You know, right. like all of those things are available to us for sure. Well, I mean, I just don't think that you know we we feel comfortable in being in our bodies. In but that's not a foregone conclusion for for the best life. So I don't completely refute the programming, <laughs> but I have said things like, I am seeking the perfect amount, the perfect amount of self-loving to have that I don't end up having to put on other people. Mm. Because if you have too much self-loving, it just kind of comes out of you and it gets aimed at other people. And so I'm trying to have like less than the right amount even for me. And so it's occasional. You know, it's occasional self-loving, but it's there to temper the idea that, like, I know what my choices are. Shut your fucking mouth. You know, <laughs> like, I know I made those choices. Shut your fucking mouth. But I still am a whole human being, so I don't have to hate myself, so shut up. You know, like, that kind of internal dialogue. 
But I mean, even to just, I mean, I think that there's something important about acknowledging that we all have some varying degree of self-loathing that I we're figured, always managing. I figured that out, but I don't know that to be a truth because hardly anybody wants to have that, that conversation with me. What? Like, like so few people ever, ever <laughs> want to, my kids don't want to have it with me, girlfriend don't want to have it with me. Like, I really haven't met anyone who wants to have that conversation about the perfect amount of self-loathing. Well, uh, we're having it. We are having Which it. Which is sorry. hilarious because it's, uh, yeah, it's... I think it's important to... Sure. I mean, I, you know, I've spent, you know, years, years and years doing all kinds of different work to try and figure out how to manage the, the windfall, right? Because that's kind of what it... It is, it's always felt like, just like all of a sudden, boom, I get an idea and then all of the like self, like the, the pressure of all of the ideas of that, like the, that I haven't accomplished or what I, like all of the negativity. All the things still to be done or not done. Right, just the dissatisfaction, like like all the the rampant dissatisfaction that will just like vomit out of my mind. And, you know, I'm like, whoa, ah! And, you know, and how much that creates more chaos and more misery in that I'm now no longer able to make uh, best possible choices because it's out of this tainted space, right? So I'm 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 intrigued by the notion of the perfect amount of self-loathing because I know that it's it's not health. I you know, and I I guess I'm I'm so attached to my idea of like my inner Dorothy Parker that I loathe the idea of not having you know sarcasm and. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to be a shiny, happy person all the time. That's ridiculous. But you know at the same I've time. From here? Hmm? You know I've banned sarcasm from here? <laughs> Should I go? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it doesn't apply to, to guests, but. In and, the day-to-day workforce? In the day-to-day work, only Wednesdays <laughs> are good for sarcasm. 12 to 1 lunch no, break? all day, whatever. Okay. It's because we have guests every Wednesday almost without fail mm-hmm. but but yeah it's it's in the it's in the employee handbook <laughs> that, yeah. how, how does that how do people can like when they sign up for that what is the reaction of your employees they generally say oh that's gonna be hard and I say okay <laughs> and what is that transition process like do you catch people and like that was sarcasm it's Tuesday go home I just Actually, it's it's not. There's no punishment like go home. It's not typically uh, done in that way. But here, but here's a, a perfect example of how I might do it. I might go, oh, so that's what sarcasm is, and I'm confused. And you should know that I have an allergy to sarcasm. Like <laughs> it's uh, it doesn't get me anywhere. I have this this glitch. You say something to me, I need it to be truthful. Mm. And and sarcasm gets in the way of that being truthful, so therefore I glitch. I don't know if you're not being truthful with me. And my condition around telling the truth is so strong for you that like you need to sort of push the sarcasm to the side of our conversation so that I can experience you in your truthful self. That's what I need. 
mm. because that's effective in our place of business and in our work. Does it, have they told you how that's resonated in their personal lives, like as it like filters out or do they? I mean, I've probably had people, you know, not in the dozens, but maybe up to a dozen. I've probably had people up to about a dozen of them historically say to me, it, Change really change the way that they speak and the way that they listen mm -hmm. uh, and for the rest of their lives. That that because sarcasm, you know, while it's while it's socially acceptable, it's also really it's terribly awkward. It's mm. terribly the way I call it in in the manual is I say it is a technique of communication that is used to disarm and confuse your conversant mm. so therefore it is not a technique that we uh, lean into mm. and because the goal here is to not disarm and to confuse your conversant but actually create harmony in your conversations and to be effective so that's why we don't use it well i'll tell you that's probably the that that's um that's an amazing tool to think about. I feel, yeah, I mean, my, you know, my 14-year-old self, you know, got a copy of Dorothy Parker and, you know, was just like, yes, thank you. I can survive high school with it. And I recognize that, you know, it, it's, it's a survival technique that I learned how to be funny because of that. And I have continuously continuously been unpacking if I'm willing to like let go of like who I am like the the identity of being clever as opposed to just being nice right it's like yeah. oh nice dear god you know but yeah, it's like, nice is nice. Nice is okay. I am a, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a good person who's generally happy and, you know, all of the things. I don't have to have a, a sassy comment. And yet, yeah. It comes so naturally. I think you cultivate a certain part of it all by yourself um, as a young person with voice. And then not being it later on is just hard. Yeah. Because you look for language to serve you in that same way where it gives you power. Right. Because it's so easy. Like, so I know easy. how to make someone laugh. I'm like, boom. All right. And we're done. Yeah. I know. For the same reason I don't like wearing, like, you know, I mean, if I had my druthers, I'd wear white all the time and, you know, crystals all over the place and, you know, whatever, all sorts of stuff. But I'm like, oh, that's a terrible hippie thing. But it's, you know, the armor, as it were. Absolutely. City armor. I'm just making these edits on this sheet so that, because we're going to go downstairs in a little while, and we're going to um, just print. Yes, these. These. Yay! And, I, you know, for some part of it, I don't know why it seemed important for me to invite you towards the, the beginning of this experience, too, but I was like, it was a good idea for, for me to feel like you could get to know me a little bit by being here. Yeah. By seeing what I do. Because like you said, you kind of know of me, but you don't know what I do or how I do it or, 
you know what I mean? There's a bit of that yeah. history. Well, and I think that there's, you know, I mean, I being in someone's space, especially their creative space, their studio, you know, you really get to understand like the process, right? And their value system. You know, I, I fundamentally believe that uh, people are walking truths. They don't tell you the truth, but you can, they show you the truth, you know, in their, you know, their books or, you know, we're all their your entire value system is here. Yeah. Except for some of it is like, uh, even a little out of date, like as we constantly evolving people, we change the furniture around us that describes us and stuff. Mm. So sometimes it feels like I'm in someone else's life and I have to rearrange the room. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you get like your own museum. You're like, I don't know if this is still me. me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like every once in a while, you're just much. like, oh my god. Yeah. I, as a as a collector of every, you know, there's art everywhere, all over my house, the books, and, and you know, and every, you know, every once in a while, I'm just like, I just kind of want to not have anything on my walls and no pictures and no, not so many things that I love. If anything, to just open up the idea of like, what do I love? Aww, that so, sounds lovely. <laughs> I mean, isn't it kind of amazing when you have just a blank space again? You know, who am I? I've actually done that several times. Of, you know, just completely dropped my home, my everything, and I'm like, walk out with a bag and completely restart. Really? Oh yeah. Just twice for me. Mm. A little bit more than that, because I still have the records I was raised with. <laughs> but, but yeah, but most other things, definitely not. I still have the records, and I might have, uh, I might have some old stuff too, like really, really early books, like mm. books that I had, the books that taught me graphic design when I was in my early twenties. Those books are are still here. Do you go back and read them at all, or? Not as much read them as I do share with the people that are here because they might not have known those books existed at the time. Well, share the books. What are the, the fundamental books for graphic design? Oh, gosh. Huh. Um, so the first two books are pretty important books, but one of them is a, called A Language of Vision mm. by a guy named Georgi Kepesh, mm-hmm. the Hungarian expatriate that came over after the Second World War, worked at MIT for a while, a smart guy. Not then, dull. Huh? Not dull. Not dull. Uh, and then the other book was called The Liberated Page, and it was an anthology. I didn't know it at the time. It was an anthology of a magazine that existed in England in three different situations. I think the late 60s was one. Huh. The mid-70s... It tanked and then was revived in the late 70s. And then I think it was closed forever by like the 90s or something like that. But the magazine was called Typographica. It was edited by a guy named Herbert Spencer. And this book probably single, like this book single-handedly changed shit for me because it showed me, both of these books came out of the bargain bin. Always. At the Strand Bookstore in New York. And um, and those those two books showed me graphic design, and they sort of began walking the road of this is the promise of graphic design. 
Mm. When I say the promise of, I mean, like, the essential thought that you just witnessed something that was pretty fucking good. If you're good enough, you will one day contribute to a conversation in a way that's consistent with what this does in the conversation of what graphic design is. That's what I mean by, like, the promise. Because <laughs> it didn't have to be perfect, and it didn't have to be beautiful. It just had to be good. And this typographica magazine had a really early sense of what was good and not necessarily steeped in beauty mm. and steeped in classicism. Which would, of course, be great for your sensibilities, right? It's sort of what helped create that, I suppose. Yeah. You know, because the, all these things are happening simultaneously. Me meeting, meeting Jen and me being in New York and me, you know, like teaching myself graphic design with books from the Strand. These are all happening simultaneously. I think that's how it all happens, right? Is that as you just get hit with, you know, and you just kind of evolve. The soup because, of your young life. Boom. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, the, the single pot dish of your young life. Right. Like there's, you know, there's these little, these moments where you, yeah. you're, you've got all of these things that are happening to you and um, it's like the, the secret sauce and all of a sudden you just like rock it into the next part of you. Absolutely. I think that that's what's, I, th I think that's probably single-handedly what gives me faith is the, the knowledge of that the universe just conspires to like give you all of the pieces. I think that's, that's good. It, it brings this notion of like, you know, movements into this space of uh, not conflict, but collision, mm, right? Yeah. And then it also talks about it from this harmonious perspective. Like we survive these moments and have this sort of, perspective that really isn't likely to belong to many other people right and that to me is pretty successful if I think of myself as a unique person then that's good enough my <laughs> biology has succeeded <laughs> and it even made two more people yeah right if you want to go back to the sort of alligator slash reptilian you know <laughs> brain and our ability to, to make things and make progeny and make work and to think differently and do all that stuff. I think, I think honestly, the, the, the stew, the one pot, the, the, the whatever jus. the fucking, the jus, the soup that has been my young life so far, it's plenty unique. Fuck it. Good. <laughs> you know? That, I think that was your best Jew moment ever. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it. You know, it's already good. It's already good. But, I mean, your life seems to have been, you know, an ongoing uh, unfolding of self-acceptance. So it does it feel bigger now or something? Like, you you know, now I'm at the fuck it. Because did you not feel that unique no, was... I think I think that the difference between the young and the old version of me was I don't think I have any choices. Um, I've committed myself to this way of thinking to this community. I've committed myself to this action. I don't really think I have any choices. I really prefer thinking in different ways versus being in the mainstream. Mm. I really prefer being um, uh, inspired by a fringe. I, I enjoy having access to things that are not like me and 
also can be like me, or there are things that are, would welcome me. So, so I've always had this quest for uh, knowledge as a bigger thing versus mm. a smaller thing, like not specific knowledge, but unspecific knowledge, I, I suppose you might say. Quest. So I've always, yeah, I've been open to a lot of different ways of thinking from a, from a fairly young age. And probably because my parents had me read encyclopedias when I was young. Mm. So, like, the encyclopedic knowledge that was available to me was already digested. And then there was, like, other shit, right? Like, regular life stuff. So, so I, I did, I do that, but I also experience, like, yeah, this is when the screen goes dark. The whole room goes, like... Right, and then it's all flickery business. Yes. Um, I think that for me... The, the self-acceptance isn't necessarily self-acceptance. There's a little bit of that self-loving piece in there. Um, and also, it's there's a little bit of resignation in there. Mm. Um, and there's a little bit of try to find the non-winning state before you are frustrated by a non-winning state. So you sort of zigzag around things that you don't believe you can be successful at and try and sort of adapt your path according to where, where you strength or when you're using your strengths um and that stuff evolves over experience and time based on like some of some of my life events and including the death of my wife and including the opportunity to, to contribute to my young my young daughter's lives in a very specific kind of way also with the opportunity to find such clarity in my relationship with my partner now who's a widow as well and having my suspicions about how being a widow is um, like I was very suspicious of all the other widows in group therapy. I was really suspicious that they were trying to to do something that wasn't natural to the to the experience, right? And I didn't know quite what it was, but I spent a bunch of time thinking about it. And and sooner or later, you know, like I came out the other end with my partner and with a with a belief that like. It is simply so personal and simply such an opportunity to re, to re-strategize the mysteries of life, the mm. mysteries of your existence, to re-strategize how you embrace the unknown and how well you do it, mm. even with risk in your mind or even with like loss, grief, grief and loss, right? So, so some of that has been the most recent like evolutions of me, and then. And then um, other things open up at the same time, like like simultaneously. Other types of gratitude or experiences show up simultaneously, and they kind of go, "Oh yeah, don't forget to be grateful for what you do have." Like, "Oh yeah, right, yeah." There's 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 elements of that which need to be nurtured as well. I've always found that um, it doesn't take too long for me to get the right tool to work my way out of you know whatever mess I'm in good that's a skill that's a fantastic skill yes yes and if you didn't get yourself in the mess in the first place boy would that be a great skill you know like I, I feel that about myself anyway I think that that's kind of the the I think my coping mechanism has always been just that um it's unavoidable you know that like you, you know, that there's, there's no expectation that there was perfection to begin with and I fucked it up. It's just that, you know, this is a divine amount of insanity and you're just sort of scaling it and surfing it and, right. you know, 
some days I find a surfboard and some days I find an umbrella and, you know, whatever, you know. And I envy that. <laughs> I envy that. Well, because I think I have, I have less, that's the healthy resignation part of it where you're like perfection was not on, whatever you said was great. I think it was perfection was not on the table in the first place. I yeah. didn't fuck it up. That right there, what a great perspective. I'm learning, trying to digest that fully. Mine, mine is resignation in that area. Mine is that, ah, not perfect, ah, okay. Let's try not to cock it up too hard, you know? Like, like don't fuck it up even more, Griffith, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more, it, probably masculine, mm. and it's probably a little bit more programmed, you know, and, and sort of automatic. But, but, I, but I like yours. I like yours a lot. I'd love to get there. Um, well, it, it was expensive, so, you know. Uh, well, thanks for a freebie. <laughs> if, I can, if I get there, I'll let you know. Uh, you yeah. can amortize the cost of your healing over several people if you share right, you know. That would be really great. Um, yeah, I mean, that's actually been something I have, uh, I, I really, I offer that to a lot of, um, like when I meet people and they're, you know, and they're, they're you know, uh, super high strung about because uh, perfection is this huge thing that everybody is com- like the con- comparison right, right? Comparison, yeah. that comparison Terrible. so hardcore oh so what an impulse to compare things what a cr- tremendous impulse and it being so dangerous oh, and it's miserable so, yeah it's so miserable there is no success there is, you know, for the same reason that one should never want to be popular. That yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah, the yeah, least yeah, fun yeah, yeah. because least you are you are ever. obligated to other people's opinion, and that's misery. Or or, or worse. Yeah. I mean, it could be. It's just terrible. It's just terrible. The externalized, right? It's always the externalized that drives you absolutely batty. Which is again why it's like creativity. You know. Being an artist, that's an external thing. But like the actual cultivation of creativity, that is an internalized process that right. doesn't uh, that doesn't need any of you know that is not I can buy it here or people or you know it's like it's not it's internalized. And the same thing I believe of sensuality, right? Like that is not something that comes from this external source. It's something that like you figure out what your body likes, what your mind likes, you know. And then you work on achieving the permission part to be it. Right. And then <laughs> and then you Super cool. And then you apply that to how do I actually want to get something in the relationship of the or world. Just be it. Right. Yeah. Or I am this right. thing. Right. And then all of a sudden that ought, then your sexuality can be placed on top of it because yeah. You are who you are. It feels rare that people define themselves as sexual uh, sort of persons or sexual people in the first place anyway. It, it doesn't seem like terrible. It's horrifying. Right, right. It doesn't seem polite. Like someone, someone's rude because they talked about their penis. <laughs> you know, like really, is that the, yes, that's why we call them. We call them rude. Right. It's rude or, <laughs> you know, for it. you're foul, right, foul shame, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, I was, so my mom, I was raised in a cult, um, Church Universal and Triumphant, and, um, which is led by a woman. And it embraces um, a, a lot of the different global religions is that they were all prophets. They came here to teach you love, blah, 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 blah. 
But the fundamental thing that is interesting is that I sidestepped any sense of that sex was, there was no discussion of shame around being a sexual person or anything of that nature. So I was never raised in uh, the typical, like, I should feel bad. Right. And um, shame is the only thing that keeps us from behaving in ways that are inconsistent with our values. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> which which goes a long way to putting shame as the, the protector of your values. You know, you're like, we don't do it because what would people say? Exactly. That's the Jewish thing. It is the what, what would people think of me? What would people think of me? Right. And I, I never had that. And it, I mean, yeah. blessing and a curse because attempt a relationship with, you know, most men have virgin whore complex all over the place. And, you know, meeting a woman that doesn't have any of the things that are associated, I don't, I can't, I don't even know how to begin. What is virgin whore complex except for, and this is what my belief is, my belief around it is that men want both, but don't want either. <laughs> because... I think that the the idea that men want both is sort of natural. Yeah. And then a woman can be both, and that's also natural. But the label called whore seems unnecessary. <laughs> and is. the whole person seems to have at least this much range, whether you're a male or a female... And I think that what we're talking about here is like restricting the range of people with shame-filled words. Mm -hmm. So this is not, it's not a prop. this is, I love it, because it's not a problem of the psyche, it's a problem of language. It's, I and it's turned into a problem of the psyche. I, I think that how it has, well, you know, when you look at the Bible, you know, and I've always said this, I was like, I can't, I, I can't even consider Christianity as something to follow because I don't have any, there's not a role, like there's not a role model that I would wish to be as a woman in this book. Like no one, no one really looks like it's a good, it's a good time, right? I don't know what I would want to sign up for for these parts. Most of the time it's parts. about the negotiated freedoms that many of these not free women have. Right. And the things that they do because they are not free. Right. Exactly. It's like every film that has black people in it is about slavery. <laughs> <laughs> and what black people would do to avoid it. Right. And what people have done since it. And nothing is framed in the other in the other sense of completeness or wholeness. Mm. Which would be which you know, like again, Hollywood knows how to Hollywood knows how to perpetuate that stuff and also knows how to like recreate it if they want to. And they you know, they do a half decent job of letting women write the write the in the in the sense of write the wrongs that are obvious mm. and it takes brave women to keep on doing it. Well you know let's go downstairs by the way. Oh yeah yeah. Let's take this down. People have to work people. <laughs> <laughs> um, well we I, can still talk about that and I'll introduce you to all the people. <clears throat> Hello, hello. Did those pronouns make it downstairs? Hi there. 
Katie, did you grab the printouts? Yeah. Ah, cool. Here you go.